left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Leverage is the bane of really long-term investors many times where they over lever and then you hit pothole and you get in big trouble. So again, be mindful of the leverage, be thoughtful in your underwriting, think about the ability to sort of move rents and or expenses, frankly, along with inflationary pressures or things that arise. And again, be a little bit more conservative than you might otherwise be and you'll be in great, great shape. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy. Not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place, so you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the left field community. Hi, this is Tom Wright, and you're listening to Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. I'm very excited today to have a repeat guest, Eric Sussman. He's founding partner of Clear Capital and an adjunct professor with UCLA's Anderson Graduate School of Management. He was previously on episode 21, and he spoke at our recent March 28th Left Field Investors meeting, which you can view the recording on our website. So, Eric, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast again. Thanks, Jim. It's great to be invited back to the party. Well, we had a great time the first time, so we're going to do it all over again. And the way we usually start, as you know, is can you just kind of give us a brief journey of how you got here, how you got into real estate? If listeners want to really dive in and hear the whole story, they can go back to episode 21. But just give us the cliff notes here. Oh, my gosh, the cliff notes. Now, that takes me back to junior high school or high school, Jim. Well, for me, it was really a career pivot. I was a CPA accountant type from Pricewaterhouse. I'm sure many of you are familiar with that name. And I went back to graduate school to get my MBA. And it was really there that I made the pivot into real estate. After getting my MBA, I worked for a small shop someone who was doing sort of on a smaller scale what we at Clear Capital do today, and that is sort of sponsoring real estate partnerships and investment opportunities. He was also doing some private lending. And frankly, I was itching and always have itched to be on my own. And so in, gosh, early 90s now, time flies. Anyway, started sort of the predecessor firm, which ultimately morphed into Clear Capital, which is a real estate private equity firm today. And 
got about well over a billion dollars of management and a lot of faces now. Anyway, so it's been great and I feel very blessed and grateful for it all. That's great. And as I said, you've been this is the second time on the podcast. You've done a couple of monthly meetings for us. So we appreciate everything from Clear Capital. You guys are great partners with us, but we got to just jump into this. Do it. Inflation is the main thing everyone's talking about besides Ukraine. But let's start with inflation, transitory, here to stay. Is it going to be here forever? How does it affect real estate? What's going to happen? My gosh. Well, that's a lot to unpack. Well, it's funny, Jim. I've been writing about inflation for a number of years, and I guess we got sort of lulled into a sense of complacency, which happens over time. Most of us haven't really experienced any significant inflation since the 1970s. And what's that old joke that if you live through the 1970s, you don't remember it anyway. So probably given fashion sense back then and disco, maybe that's a good thing. But in any event, here's the punchline, and it's a sobering one, is the Fed has created a true monster. It really has. They ran the spigot on money supply in the printing press, I think, in what may have been sort of misdirected actions. And in so doing, basically, they've created, again, this monster of inflation, which is now printing at 8%. We've had months over months of sort of inflation rates we haven't seen since, again, the late 70s and really early 1980s. It's going to be here for a while. I'm not sure looking out how long it's going to persist, but I think we should all get used to higher inflation rates and what that looks like in terms of whether it's 7% or hits double digits. My gosh, I think it's going to be at least for the next several months, and we'll see how that plays out. And look, honestly, this is one of those things where, look, I get paid to sort of predict the future. And one thing we didn't talk about, of course, and many of you know me from being on the faculty at UCLA Business School, too. So I do a lot of this sort of talking about the markets, and it's sort of uncomfortable for me because I don't know how long this is going to last and its ultimate impact, partly because it's sort of consumer psychology. Everyone has gotten used to 2 to 3% inflation rates for as far back as we can remember. So how are consumers, investors, and others going to respond to much higher inflation rates as we look forward, Jim. And again, I think I look squarely at the Fed and I'll add one other comment and I'm sure you'll have some other questions you want me to talk about. But if you're Jerome Powell, chairperson of the Federal Reserve, he is going to have to thread a very fine needle or I don't know what's the other expression, walk a narrow tightrope as he sort of balances the inflationary reality with the need not to push us into recession, especially with Ukraine, which you mentioned, and likely lower GDP prints as you sort of look out into 2022. So like we're real estate investors, right? Multifamily and other assets. But how is persistent inflation, right? We're done with the two to 3% possibly for some period of time. And I obviously I know no one can predict the future, <laughs> but what do we do with the real estate then? It seems like things have been going so well. It's just been going up, up, up. And rent increases last year. I was looking at your latest newsletter, like 20% or some crazy thing in some markets. So we live in a finite world. We cannot have infinite growth, right? So what do we do as real estate investors? Right. Again, there's so much to unpack and sort of think about. And anyone who gives you a flippant, simple answer, you buy this or sell that is not really thinking through the calculus. Because Jim, you and I have talked before on several occasions, and I'm always thinking about headwinds and tailwinds. It's how I think about everything. Maybe some of my students, I drive them crazy to think deeply about these issues. So let's sort of unpack it in a couple ways to think about it. The way I think about real estate or any investment, frankly, is 
it really in its simplest terms, it's a numerator and a denominator. Think of the numerator as cash flows, rents, however you want to think about it. In the denominator, it's really interest rates or in real estate, of course, we think about cap rates, right? So let's talk about the denominator, the last one first, sort of the cap rates and how we think about that, right? Cap rates being sort of what is going to be sort of the overall pricing of real estate. Now, in normal times, of course, as you have inflation increases in the yield curve, you'd expect expansion of cap rates, which mean lower real estate prices. And all else equal, I think that is unequivocally accurate. It's hard to imagine, again, a world where you've got 8% inflation and cap rates, well, if you're talking about multifamily assets in the three to fours or something like that, right? It's sort of a disconnect there, it seems. And part of that, people making heads and tails of that reality is it's, it goes to the money supply issue. There is record levels of money out there. And I'm sure many of your listeners and others out there are wondering, what should I do with the cash I have in the bank, which is burning a hole in my wallet and earning negative real returns, right? I mean, the money sitting in the bank is getting what I like to talk about academically, describe academically as between jack and squat. And and yet inflation is running 8%. So again, you don't have to be an MBA or a CPA to sit there and say, well, 0% that I'm earning or 0.1% or something ridiculous in the bank versus an 8% inflation print is not a good thing. Basically, you're destroying value every month that's sitting in cash. Well, that is a very broad global problem where you have record levels of money supply sitting there. So it's again this MMA battle on higher inflation higher interest rates, which would normally be expansion of cap rates, coupled with just a ridiculous amount of capital sitting on the sidelines. I mean, at every level, whether it's households or the Blackstones of the world, and it's burning holes in pockets. So you're going to have this sort of battle, which means you're going to have some cap rate expansion, but not as great expansion as you might otherwise experience, because there's just so much money looking for investment homes. That's the denominator. On the numerator, is a little more interesting to me, because that is really about the cash flows and the rents you're going to achieve on any particular real estate investment and how that might adjust for inflation. Now, for those listeners out there that might have these sort of long-term leases, triple net kind of investments ranging from, I don't know, it could be a Walgreens single tenant retail property to some industrial properties that also may have maybe bumps in rent every two to five years, I mean, depending on how you've structured it, I mean, some of them do adjust annually. But generally, those have ceilings. You're not just allowed to increase the rents willy-nilly with changes in inflation. There's ceilings or actually set percentage increases on the rents. So those will have some adjustments. But again, you're probably going to be hurt by inflationary increases, just not able to increase the rents commensurate with inflation pressures. So then we get to sort of multifamily and my sense there. So this is where probably we're multifamily. And again, I know I always sound like I'm preaching the gospel of multifamily. I have been accused of that more than a few times. And it is our business. So admittedly, I may have just a slight bias. But if you stop and think that in multifamily, you've got short-term leases, anywhere from six months to a year, let's just say, some on month to month, frankly, once they're past their lease term. And the question is, well, whether for most of us, we're in non-rent controlled environments, or at least we're looking at investing in non-rent controlled environments. So in theory, you can raise the rent to whatever the market is. Okay. Then the question is, can your tenants actually afford it? That's great to be able to chart and say, hey, dear tenant, your rent's going from 1200 to 1400 next month. 
you can send a thank you letter to Jerome Powell, care of Washington, D.C. I'm sure he'll get it. Uh, I'm sure he's getting more than his fair share of, I won't say hate mail, but dislike mail. How's that? But it ties to wages. And one of the big inflationary pressures is wages. Wages have gone up. They're going up and across the board. And so my sense is that tenants will be able to shoulder higher rent hikes on multifamily due to their higher wages. They may not be thrilled to pay them, but I think that's important. So overall, what I would encourage folks to listen to think about is, are you investing in real estate assets where your ability to increase rents along with inflationary pressures are somewhat correlated? If you can do that, you're in great shape. If you're buying flat 20-year leases, well, I think you're basically buying a bond in an inflationary environment, which is not where you want to be. So if I'm buying into real estate and it's cash flowing now, and as you said, especially if it's multifamily, you can always increase rents if your tenants can afford to pay for it. Is that how an investor should look at it? We should only be investing in things that are cash flowing now rather than development deals? Or is there a change in how we should look at what type of investments we're looking for? Well, again, that's, again, a, a much more complicated question. Even say you're saying talking about development deals, I suppose it's, it depends on the development itself and where you think pricing will be. The thing about development, of course, let's say it's a 30 to 36 month endeavor and you're dealing with all that uncertainty. And so it's by definition, it's not cash flowing. And meanwhile, developers will tell you, I'm sure some of you have some friends or some of you involved in the construction business, that whether it's raw materials or labor, construction costs are rising 20 to 30% a year. They have been at least for the last year or two. And I have no doubt that that trend of inflationary pressures just because of supply chain issues and what's going on in China, if you follow that recent, even more recent news that Shenzhen is closed down for COVID issues. So our supply chain woes are only going to get worse. Anyhow, that means, again, your construction costs are going to be up substantially over two to three years. The key is, okay, it is critical. If you're going to invest in those deals, what do you think the pricing when you're out of the ground and get your certificate of occupancy and are finally going to recapitalize or monetize that endeavor? What's that look like? So you just, again, really need to underwrite and think about if you're going to be selling a stabilized asset, what is the leasing environment going to look like two to three years out? Whether those rent rates that those tenants can pay are going to move with that inflationary pressure you're feeling on the construction costs? And if the answer is no, or you're not sure, then I would stay away. Best to just not take that risk because it is so much uncertainty. So that's on the development front, Jim, at least the way that I see it. And you had mentioned there's lots of cash in people's pockets, right? And you can see that when a new investment comes up and people are all over it, it fills up very fast. And I know the Fed's been printing money and sending people checks and things like that, but we're having inflation. Why is there so much money in consumers' pockets? Well, again, it's not just about the Federal Reserve putting money in people's pockets, which it did literally and figuratively, right? I mean, I think more than a few of us got those checks, PPP loans and the rest of it and various payments. But remember, Jim, to the extent that people have assets, whether it's equities or certainly real estate, which a lot of your listeners do already, they've experienced tremendous growth in the value of that portfolio of the last whatever, fill in the blank with your time period. But until 2022, really, until this year, it's been good times. I mean, it's been, we're back with uh, Jimmy Walker and the 1970s and good times, right? I mean, as you said, uh, 
housing prices. So most of your listeners, of course, own a home or more than one home. And those were up nationally nearly 20% last year. And that was compounding over other increases over the last five years. We've had an incredible run. Same with multifamily, same with industrial, same with the equity markets. The equity market, S&P 500 was up 28% last year. So almost anywhere you threw darts, people with assets have done well. So again, I think it's not just about the money printing, which was incremental and significant, at least for a lot of folks. But for your listeners and our investor base, things have been pretty good. And for white collar workers, pretty darn good. So that's really the issue, Jim. And people have got the cash sitting there earning that those anemic, those anemic savings rates at your local Wells Fargo or whatever. So that means all this capital out there chasing deals that seems like it would put pressure on syndicators that are buying real estate to be more aggressive. And so how do we analyze that as an investor? How do I think, okay, I'm still analyzing all these deals that are coming here, but how do I know if a syndicator, obviously I see first year rent increases of 8%. I'm like, okay, that seems too aggressive, but what are some other ways I can figure that out? Cause it seems like to me that the natural tendency is to be, People are going to have to find something to buy. They're going to have to find a place to put their money. So there's going to be some aggressive deals out there. Is that what you're seeing? No question. I mean, Jim, again, you and I have talked before. I've used this line and forgive me if it's a repeat from an earlier podcast that we did. But I think discipline is the watchword. And I'm constantly preaching that to our underwriters. And look, the reality is the net result is we are bridesmaids or groomsmen many times. And in fact, it was just a deal outside of Denver, which was just that. It was, hey, Eric, look, we're at this pricing. The broker said we need to be at that pricing if we're going to get this deal. And I walked through the numbers and I just was like, no, okay, I will be the bridesmaid groomsman or whatever the appropriate term is this time. And that's life in the big city. And maybe I'll look back in 12 months and kick myself in the shorts. I've done that many times and say, shoulda, woulda, coulda. But I think that's really important discipline. Now, and just be thoughtful and mindful on the underwriting. I don't think necessarily 8% rent increases are out of norm, depending on the market, the property type, and what kind of value landlords might be adding to the units. But I think you've just got to be conservative. And look, sometimes, was it FOMO? I fear of missing out leads to some bad investment decisions, and you're just sort of being very aggressive. One thing about aggressive, too, it's funny, Jim, you sort of alluded to underwriting and you know, rent growth. You project and cap rates you sort of project or whatnot. I would also say, look, brokers are pushing people, you know, of course, put money hard on day one, non-refundable deposits, accelerate your due diligence, waive your loan contingencies and the rest of it, depending on the asset. And again, look, there's nothing wrong with saying, no, I'm not going to do that. Or, I'll, okay, maybe I'll shorten my due diligence period and I'll hustle. But, you know, you start putting money down, non-refundable and sort of playing in that sandbox, you just be very mindful and thoughtful about what you're up to. Yeah. And the other thing, it seems like a lot of these deals are going full cycle faster, right? I've been in several deals that were five-year to seven-year holds, and I'm already out of them in 18 months. Another <laughs> one was 13 months, right? They've already achieved their business plan in 13 months. So, I mean, I'm sure it's not sustainable, but how is that happening? Well, again, so you're absolutely right. In fact, we have a deal, and I don't know if Jim, it's one that you invested in or not, at Urban Park Aspire Midtown, as we've renamed it in Arizona. And right, we bought it in, don't quote me on the date, but let's say it was 12 to 14 months ago, and you're in what you just described. And 
And I get a call saying, hey, the asset's worth X dollars more than we paid. Should we sell? And I think the answer was yes. We achieved a business plan and I can't imagine this party continuing like it has. So again, that just speaks again to things we've talked about, Jim, the, the amount of liquidity out there, people looking to place money. I mentioned Blackstone in passing earlier, just a data point for everybody to think about. Blackstone, of course, the behemoth, they've got different products, obviously institutional, but they've also got some retail products basically directed to folks like us. And they've been raising, at least until recently, I'm not sure if it's continuing to 22, but through the fourth quarter of last year, they were raising $2 billion a month from retail investors. Now, I'd like to have that problem. That sounds like very much a first world problem. (laughs) I'm not sure even if my Levi's jeans can hold $2 billion in a pocket, but I'd certainly try. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no kidding. Right. So the question is, what do these folks do? They get paid to put money out. They get asset management fees and, and whatever else. So Right. They're under tremendous pressure to place the money, as are all sort of fund-based investment vehicles. We as syndicators may be feeling that same pressure, but of course we feel pressure. We have overhead and mouths to feed, and now it's we don't do deals. What are we going to do? So we're working harder, but that's the issue, Jim. It's that confluence of realities. And then interest rates, even with the rise in rates and the tenure of right, about 215 this morning, which is certainly high compared to where it's been, by historical norms, that's really low. So I think you're just dealing with all those market realities, and that's causing this asset inflation, which we benefited from, but means it's getting going to get more challenging looking forward. Yeah. And it seems like every event that happens, you think, okay, this is it, right? COVID hits, stock market drops 40%. Boy, we're in for it. So yeah, we had a bad month in the stock market. Real estate wasn't really affected. And so you mentioned China. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that, right? Because they were trying to do a zero tolerance policy or whatever for COVID. And now they're having some problems. So is that going to be supply chain issues are just going to compound all of this, right? Because if China starts shutting down, what's going to happen? Right. So again, I think we have to sort of step back and say, look at all the things that have gone on these for a black swan, four sigma sort of events, as we call them in statistics, right? COVID, obviously, and maybe we're pulling out of that. But now we're seeing this as to say another variant of Omicron, which has now hit China. Of course, Ukraine, which we'll talk about, but you alluded to that. And it's just the inflationary pressures we've been dealing with. So the recent news out of Shenzhen is that, again, this China's effort and Hong Kong's as well to sort of create zero cases of COVID. I think that, again, that's proven to be a fool's errand, especially with this latest variant. And by the way, this is coming from someone who's triple jabbed and had a breakthrough case of Omicron. (laughs) So by the way, for the record, I am super immune. So I've never, at least for another month, probably. But it was inconceivable and impossible in a global world with open economy to have sort of zero cases. And I mean, China, the extremes to which they've gone, you know, just sort of, they closed down cities. Okay, so Shenzhen, which is one of this major sort of industrial manufacturing sort of facilities or areas in the entire world, and certainly very closely tied in with our supply chain and everyone else's. And so they're now shut down, essentially. Again, I haven't read the very latest news, but they sort of were shutting things down there to sort of prevent the spread of COVID. And we need a hole in our heads because, right, that's going to just exacerbate these supply chain woes and the inflationary pressures that that 
has created. So buckle up, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. Hey, left fielders, this is Julian McClurkin. When I'm not on the court with the Harlem Globetrotters, I'm the chief storyteller for Tribe Vest. Now, you might be thinking, why would Tribe Vest hire a Globetrotter? <laughs> well, through my travels around the world, I've met so many amazing people and heard their incredible stories. And it's no different at Tribe Vest. My job is to share the stories of people investing together as a group, as a tribe. TribeVest allows groups to pool their capital, set up their LLCs and bank accounts, help with operating agreements, funding rounds, and so much more. Whether you're investing with other dads from your kids' preschool class or getting into real estate syndications with people around the country like LFI infielder Brian Pawnell, TribeVest helps them all make it happen. If you want to hear more about stories about TribeVest's customers, just check out TribeVest's YouTube channel. And if you're already ready to start investing as a group, Head on over to TribeVest.com today. So Ukraine, oil prices, gas prices, what's yeah, going to happen with all that? Just to be clear, look, what's going on in Ukraine is a humanitarian crisis. They're war crimes, and it's inexplicable. It's just something we haven't seen since World War II. Again, the invasion of a sovereign nation for no reason. And it's not even clear what the rationale is, really. So again, I just want to make clear, though, Ukraine's impact on the world in terms of global GDP is very small. It's the second largest country in Europe, but in terms of GDP output, it's, it's very minimal and impact. So a lot of it is psychological, actually. It's just sort of, I think, psychological. I mean, Russia is an exporter of oil and certainly things like wheat. You've seen wheat prices go up. So again, it's just on the margin, adding inflationary pressures and also geopolitical uncertainty, which is never good for markets or investors. Just look, I mean, we're all watching the news and it's just, it's devastatingly heartbreaking. And I think that can never be good for investors or consumers just from that reality. But I think what's happening to me is much broader than the Ukraine. As I said, its impact on GDP is very nominal and, and whatnot. It's just sort of a slap in the face of this globalization trend. I don't know how many of you have read The World is Flat from Thomas Friedman. It's now been almost 20 years, but it was a bestseller and a, a very, very excellent book, I think, and changed my way of thinking about the world and interconnectedness and globalization. Say that Again, over the last 25 years, all of us listening have really seen sort of a flattening of the globe and the supply chains are global and we're all connected. Vladimir Putin has undone 25 years of economic development in Russia in two weeks, three weeks now. It's quite a feat, actually, and called into question Thomas Friedman's premise that if we're interconnected economically in a meaningful way, it'll be anti-aggression. Because why would you attack or why would you create war when you know the impact economically is going to be devastating? And that was a very logical sort of concept, right? Why would I tack, you know, Jim, you and I are tied to the hip economically, and we may disagree in so many ways, but I'm not going to attack Jim because, gee, if I do that, I'm just basically cutting my nose up to spite my face. And Putin has done that. I mean, that's why you listen to the real experts geopolitically. And I don't know where who you all listen to. I happen to mostly be listening to folks like Ian Bremmer, who's terrific. You should read his work, very knowledgeable about geopolitics. Uh, people like Mike McFall, who was the ambassador to Russia for many, many years, 
I think in the Obama administration, but again, just talking about it, and they're all confounded. They can't make heads or tails of where the end game is. This is not going to create value in any meaningful way for Russia. Anyhow, I could go on and I'll, I'll be quiet, but it's just the uncertainty. It's the geopolitical risk we now face from, again, we've all sort of felt safe that maybe nuclear weaponry actually was a deterrent, but you now you've got a sociopathic numbskull who seems to be doing things that are completely just against logic and economic benefit to his country. And how does anyone rational make heads or tails of that? You might find this interesting. I heard, again, this is going back to the 70s. I hope you all forgive me, is Henry Kissinger. People say that negotiating with Henry Kissinger when he was Secretary of State, the analogy was imagine two drivers heading towards each other at a very fast rate of speed on a cliff, basically on the edge of a cliff, and Henry Kissinger is driving towards you at 80 miles an hour. And suddenly he opens up his window and throws out the steering wheel. Now, what are you going to do? So that's sort of the thinking when you have someone like Vladimir Putin now. We're now negotiating with someone who's not thinking rationally the way you and I would think. And what does that mean for the world? Anyways, just a maybe a rhetorical question there. Yeah, it's scary. And you kind of have to, at least one, the way I think of it, you kind of separate it's horrible what's happening to Ukraine, war crimes, humanitarian disaster, all of that. And we feel for those people. And at the same time, I need to figure out what does that all mean for what I'm trying to do, my investment. So there's two parts to it, right? One is humanity and we can feel bad about all that. And I do, but then I got to think, okay, how is this Ukraine, Russia situation going to affect what I'm doing for investing, right? So do we just keep on the same plan? I mean, we talked about inflation and we talked about all this stuff. So do you just keep on moving forward and make the best decisions you can based on the information you have? Or do you change everything? Bingo, bango, bongo, Jim. You couldn't have said it more articulate and better. Look, investing is not gambling. It's not speculation. And we've had tremendous speculation the last couple of years from SPACs to Bitcoin to the mean stocks and on and on. For the rest of us who are, okay, maybe we dabble in some of that stuff because we think it's fun. And just like we think the craps table at Vegas, when they ask what we'd like to drink is fun, fine. But we need to make sure we understand the distinction between the two. The rest of us, we keep doing what we're doing, being systematic about it, whether it's dollar cost averaging in the equity markets, or we sort of are just more mindful and thoughtful about our underwriting. And the idea of we're going to invest in something to flip it, like Jim, your story of, hey, we execute our business plan in 13 months and voila, we're going to get our double digit IRR as well. Okay, that was great. That's in the past. We just keep doing what we're doing. Don't over lever. I mean, leverage is the bane of really long term investors many times where they over lever and then you hit pothole and you get in big trouble. So, again, be mindful of the leverage, be thoughtful in your underwriting Think about the ability to sort of move rents and or expenses, frankly, along with inflationary pressures or things that arise. And again, be a little bit more conservative than you might otherwise be, and you'll be in great, great shape. Now, for passive investors that are looking at deals, whether it's multifamily or anything else, but concentrate on multifamily, you say don't over lever. So how do I know, how do I evaluate that when I'm looking at a deal and one deal is at 75% leverage, one's at 65. Obviously, 65 is less, so maybe that's better. But how do I factor that into my analysis of, do I want to jump into this deal? Is 75 too high, 80 too high? I mean, how do you evaluate it? That's too narrow to me, Jim. To me, this is why I think for passive investors, 
you really need your homework on the sponsor. So how long has the sponsor been in business? What kind of cycles have they been through? My MBA students at UCLA Anderson, between 28 and 32, let's just say, they've never seen a bear market. They've never seen it. So I've said in class and I've said in other venues that crises separate wheat from chafe when it comes to leadership, when it comes to management, and when it comes to sponsors. So I think the key is for all of us when we're investing with folks to say, okay, I hate to say how much gray hair, how many wrinkles or whatever does that sponsor have? But the reality is if the sponsor has been through the financial crisis, they've been through the dot-com crisis, they've been through long-term capital management and the freezing of the global capital markets in the fall of 1998. If those of you are going to your hot tub time machines far enough back, and I can go further back than that. And sort of that's the key is that so you invest with sponsors that have been there, done that. And by definition, then you've got confidence, hopefully, at least more confidence, that that sponsor has been mindful of, again, the underwriting, the leverage, given the economic realities. And that's, I think, really, really important. And then from there, you can then look at the individual attributes of a particular deal, Jim, and be critical of the strategy and the underwriting that you're getting. So I'm looking at this. We have COVID. We have issues in China. We have a, a war in Europe. We have inflation at home with or without all of that stuff. We have Congress who can't even talk to each other, let alone do anything. We have this huge bubble of all assets that's been going on for years. So I get it what you're saying, and I agree, is you just have to be as careful as you can and move forward, right? It sounds like when I roll all that up and think about it, like have times ever been worse or have times ever been better? right? I don't know. Hang on. Okay, Jim, hang on. Slow down there, Tiger Lily. <laughs> I mean, first of all, with that preface, is it any wonder that tequila sales are hitting all-time highs? But <laughs> exactly. look, you know, it's funny. And maybe this comes from being a teacher for 30 years and a faculty member. I tell the story, and again, forgive me if I've said this to you before, Jim, either on the podcast or elsewhere, is if you were born in 1900 and you had the blessings to live until you were 100 and you would have passed away in 2000. Let's just step back. You think out times were worse. Give me a freaking break. That person who became a centurion, whatever the right term is, lived to a nice ripe old age of 100, saw two world wars, Vietnam, Korea. Yeah, the Spanish flu pandemic. You got it. Saw how many other economic downturns lived through the OPEC oil crisis, double digit inflation in the 70s. I can go on and on with a list, a parade of horribles, as the expression goes. So are times worse? Not even, okay? Not even remotely. And I think we get sucked into the noise and think it's, it's what Charles Dixon's the best of times, the worst of times. It's There have been far worse times in human history. Frankly, we have first world problems. It's not good. It's stressful. But let's make sure we don't lose our wits it's a tough time. COVID was tough. Ukraine is tough. What's going on in the world is tough. It's homelessness is tough. The wealth inequality. There are a lot of problems. Yes, and you said Congress not being able to tie their damn shoes and put a microphone in front of half these people and they don't give a about policy. They just want to talk, right? And they're not doing their damn jobs. They should be crafting policies. Instead, they're just talking to microphones. So I can go on, but let's not lose perspective. All right. Yeah, I think that's well said because it is hard to look at all those things I listed and think, what are we doing here? But it's also like we're still also 
economically, a lot of us that are investing in these assets are doing really well when all this craziness is happening. So I think the way you explain that is really good, right? There's been worse times. We'll get through this. There's perspective and we just need to carry on. And this is a financial podcast. So what we want to do is figure out how do we invest, right? And I think you've given some great advice is you just be thorough, meticulous, and keep moving forward. I think that's right. And realize that, look, investing should be a long-term endeavor. It shouldn't be gambling speculation. I'm going to buy this multifamily asset, invest in this passive deal, and then I'm going to be monetized in six months, five to seven years. Again, I can give you data points till the cows come home that if you look at any five-year period in history, we've never had a down stock market over five years, even with all some short-term blips that were crushing seemingly. But it's just the way human nature is. Again, I always make an anecdote because perspective is so important. So think about a place like Phoenix. You know, we talk about Phoenix, which literally and figuratively is smoking hot, right? Just hot. Now, let's all go back into our hot tub time machines, which is my favorite type of time machine, the hot tub. And let's go back to 2007, shall we, in the great financial crisis. Let's just do that for a moment collectively. Let's talk about Phoenix and Vegas. How were those markets just less than 15 years ago? Oh, my gosh. Foreclosure central, you could pick up assets on the cheap like nobody's business. Okay. Now, let's fast forward to before the pandemic. So let's go to, let's say, the beginning of 2020, end of 2019. Median home price in Phoenix, $285,000. right, let's fast forward to today. So first quarter of 2022 here. Median home price in Phoenix approaching $450,000. Okay, so now you think about that less than 15-year period from the depths of where you could walk down streets of Phoenix and see for sale signs or real estate owned REOs, foreclosure properties. And now people are clamoring getting into Phoenix like it's the Costco free sample line on a Saturday. Okay. And there's your investor psychology. Don't get sucked into the short term noise. Longer term, think about where the puck is going, as Wayne Gretzky said, where demographic shifts are happening and you're going to be in great shape. That's great. I think we've covered a lot. There is one question I wanted to ask you, and it's about Oregon, right? Because you are investing in Oregon. And this is kind of off topic, but it's real estate. And there's rent control in Oregon. And you guys have been doing quite a few deals there. So can you tell me how you deal with rent control? Well, let's be clear about the rent control in Oregon, which basically is 7% plus CPI or something like that, or it's got a cap of like 9%. So, yes, there's rent control in Oregon statewide, but it's fairly liberal in terms of the rent increases that are allowed. Now, the concern that I have and others have is that they start with these sort of fairly high ceilings and then they sort of cut back over time. But just to make sure we understand is the rent control in Oregon is fairly liberal in the spectrum of rent control. The other thing about Oregon is people, of course, like Washington State, too, they think of Portland or Seattle, and which are, again, I try to avoid politics and these sorts of things. Just being a teacher at UCLA, I think you can all appreciate that. (laughs) But look, there's a huge and substantial difference politically between the urban cores of Portland and Seattle, of Oregon and Washington states, and the surrounding areas, which tend to be far more conservative redder and more open to landlord relationships, shall we say. So 
that doesn't mean we're buying there willy-nilly. We're not buying in Portland proper. In fact, it would shock me if we ever did invest in Portland proper, as much as it's a great city, or at least it used to be. Uh, but yeah, in other communities outside of Portland where people are now relocating from that urban core and where I can raise rents up to 9%, count me in if the underwriting works. Yeah, and it's always interesting to me when I find someone who's investing in a state where no one wants to invest, like New York or Oregon because of these rent controls, if you understand the market and you know that, hey, it's not as severe as it sounds when you read the headlines, that there might be opportunity there because other people are staying away. So I think it's a... Yeah, you made another good point, which is being a contrarian, right? We talk to a lot of investors and many and many of them say, oh, Eric, I won't touch Oregon. Don't even talk to me about Oregon. And I listen to that. I'm like, I like hearing that because everyone says, like Phoenix, everyone's in love with Phoenix today. They couldn't stand Phoenix 15 years ago. And now it's the bachelor. They can't give enough roses out to Phoenix properties, right? Well, okay, that means stay away or be very wary or careful, much more careful in Phoenix. I hear people dissing on Oregon. I'm like, well, that gets my antenna up that maybe I should be looking there. Right. So I want to end with the easiest question, I think, because you are good at predicting the future. And as you know, this podcast is being taped in March and I haven't completed my bracket yet. So I want to know, this is going to be released in mid-April. Is there going to be a banner hung in Poly Pavilion? Should I put all my money on the Bruins? Wait, 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 wait. For one thing, you said this was the easiest question you'll ask me, you <laughs> lying piece of direct. That's the <laughs> toughest question you've asked me. By the way, you all should know that I'm a third generation Bruin. My grandfather went there. My mother went there. I went to UCLA. My wife went to UCLA. My wife went to law school there, and I'm on the faculty there. So when they take blood samples, they often see blue and gold coming out of my veins. But I'm afraid not. We could talk for an hour about that. I have a feeling Arizona is looking terrific, as much as it breaks my heart to say that of my one of our Pac-12 rivals. But the Pac-12 is looking pretty good this year. Even my, the Trojans aren't too shabby. But I think it's going to be a great tournament. Here's what I'll predict, Jim. How's this? It's going to be madness. And I don't know how many of your listeners love this time of year like I do, where I can watch Akron play the Bruins on Thursday. And actually be engaged. It's isn't it great? And it is. Let's hope there's some Cinderellas get to the Sweet 16. They're the most fun, aren't they? They are. And I'm similar to you. I am a third generation Ohio State Buckeye. And I think the Bruins are a dark horse. And I think the Buckeyes are not long for this game. But that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> so the real last question I have for you is I know you answered this before the last time you were on, but we like to give recommendations for podcasts. And if you're not a big podcast listener, maybe a book or a place to go to read about real estate or current events. And this is candid. I don't listen to many podcasts. My life is so crazy busy between the Clear Capital stuff and UCLA. Most of what I read, frankly, and I read, well, student papers, <laughs> I am a news junkie. So I read so many news sources even my head spins sometimes. But it's funny, I don't listen to podcasts. I listen to one-offs occasionally. Actually, I listen to a really interesting podcast. It's not really, I think, relevant to our dialogue here, but I thought it was great. It was The Wall Street Journal did one on Enron. It was a six-part series on Enron, which I'm telling you, if you listen to it, you'll enjoy. It was really a fascinating look at back at Enron and interviews yeah. with a lot of the key players now looking back historically. And I think that's also relevant because I think we have had and we'll have a lot of fraud right now in the markets against the SPACs and, and stocks. As far as books, my gosh, 
I did go through my laundry list of books that a student asked me, but they're not any recent ones. I mentioned The World is Flat. There are a few that are great ones that I think are worth reading that I enjoyed. David Einhorn's book from several years back, Fooling Some of the People All the Time, is a great read. Uh, if you haven't read a simple read, you can read this on a beach, Fooled by Randomness by Nicholas Taleb, which is years old. It's a classic, but it's a short read. And one that may not be on your radar, but I enjoyed too. It's also a short read. Good beach time spring break reading. Confessions of a Sociopath, written by a, a former law professor at BYU under a pseudonym. She's former because people figured out who it was and she lost her job. But it's a fascinating look at sociopathy from a true insider. You think about Vladimir Putin and perhaps some of our leaders who I think are sociopaths, which we need to avoid. I thought that was a great read. But again, nothing recent. I mean, so I apologize that I'm going back in time a little bit on that. <laughs> no, those are some great recommendations. Thank you very much. And again, thank you so much for being on the podcast again. It was fabulous. We appreciate it. And we will definitely be calling you to get you on again at some point in the future. So thank you. I look forward to it. And then to all of your listeners and uh, out there, be well. And thanks for tuning in and give Jim all the support he needs. He deserves it. He's a hardworking guy. And besides, he's a Buckeye. So we have to have some sympathy right there. <laughs> thank you. Well said. That's a great way to end it. So thank you very much. <laughs> okay. Take care, Jim. This episode is brought to you by MAG Capital Partners a leading investment firm specializing in single-tenant industrial real estate with triple-net leases. MAG invests in properties with established tenants in manufacturing, cold storage, and distribution. These income investments are designed for strong, tax-advantaged cash flow from day one and have historically generated above-market returns. With approximately $500 million of real estate acquisitions, MAG Capital Partners has extensive experience and a history of profitable exits. To learn more about MAG Capital Partners, visit www.magcp.com. I love talking with Eric. He is such a bright guy, obviously entertaining, funny, but so much knowledge. And I can't get enough of chatting with him. But some of the things that really stuck out to me when you're investing or anything you're doing, you look for the headwinds and the tailwinds. So you find the things that are working for you. You find the things that are working against you, you analyze them and you put them in the perspective of the investment that you're analyzing. So that was great advice, along with don't over lever. I think that is something that we should always be thinking about, but that's just something more important maybe now than it has been before. But keep moving forward. We can't just sit on the sidelines. We can't just not invest. If you have capital, right, you're, you're losing. Now, I learned from another person that I admire that you don't need to look for return on every single dollar. You don't need yield on every dollar in the bank. It's okay to have some strategic reserves, but you still need to keep moving forward. And if you're making good decisions and you're doing the right analysis and you're with the right sponsors, you can still invest even in these turbulent times, which as Eric noted, are not the worst of times, right? They might not be the best of times. There's so much going on right now and it's super stressful. That doesn't mean we stop moving forward. That doesn't mean we stop investing. And it doesn't mean that these are the worst of times because they certainly aren't. The other thing, do your homework on sponsors. This is nothing new to left field investors. This is almost probably the biggest reason why we exist is to figure out sponsors. How do you evaluate sponsors? And a couple things he said, you probably would want sponsors or people on the team to have gone through multiple cycles. So someone that, as he said, just started doing this in 2012, they've never been through anything adverse yet. So how are they going to react? 
So if you have a choice between two the exact same deals and one is with someone who started investing in the 90s and one is someone who started in 2012, nothing against the newer person, but you might have more success with someone who's been through some cycles, who has some experience, who's been in the business for a long time. So I think that's great advice. And he also mentioned related to this is crises, right? That it separates the good sponsor from the bad sponsor or someone who knows what they're doing from someone that doesn't know what they're doing because how long have they been in it? Have they been through some of these crises? Have they been able to succeed even in these difficult times? So again, Eric is a great guy. Really appreciate all of his contributions to left field and all he's done for us being in meetings, coming on the podcast, and we will 100% have him on again. I recommend you go to Clear Capital and check out his newsletter. It is as this podcast was, hearing from him, entertaining and informative. And that's what you can get from Eric every time. So that's it for today. We'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show was copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. <laughs>